welcome to a new episode of The Brand Called You. Today, it is my pleasure, my honor to have an absolutely iconic Indian, Kiran Karnik, on our show. Kiran, welcome to the show. Thank you. Kiran uh, has been recognized as a Padma Shri. He was awarded the Padma Shri. He has worked with ISRO. He was the head of NASCOM. He's worked with Discovery Networks, Animal Planet. He was the chairman of Satyam during its rehabilitation days. He's been on the board of RBI. He's on the Scientific Advisory Council to the Prime Minister. He was the business person of the year several times, and he's an accomplished author. My God, that is quite an accomplishment. Thank you. Just tells you how old I am. No, no, all that. Not at all. <laughs> Fantastic. So, Kiran, you know, talk to us a little bit about your early days and some of your learning, some of the challenges. You know, if I talk my, of my early days, I suppose in terms of career, uh, what stands out almost a mile high is my decision to join and take up a job where I did, uh, which was actually in atomic energy. Later, I spent more than two decades in the Indian space yeah. program. And this came about because uh, graduating from a business school, everybody's looking for all the nice plum jobs. Yeah. And so was I, frankly. Yeah. And then there is very intriguing whether the job opportunity in Department of Atomic Energy in the government of India. And somehow intrigued because Vikram Sarabhai, who was then the chairman of Atomic Energy Commission, uh, was coming down himself to do the interviews. He had been the first honorary director of Office in School. Okay. So I said, hey, good chance to meet him. Let's go and see what it's for a luck. I went to meet him and uh, it changed where I was headed altogether. Okay. I was so intrigued by his vision and what he wanted to do. I fell into it and thought I'd be there for a few years, try it out, check it up. If not interested, both foolish and idealistic. Foolish to think that I will get a job after a year or two. Yeah. Yeah. Idealistic saying, hey, this is what I want to do. Correct. And I thought a year or two, let's see how it goes. And that became 23 years. Amazing. So let's talk about your, you know, ISRO journey. I mean, you, you call yourself a public non-intellectual. You're one of the most humble and down-to-earth people I have come across after such accomplishments. But talk to us about the early years at ISRO. I mean, you know, what an amazing organization this country has. I, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, obviously a biased viewpoint, yeah. but I think it's true. Because when you look at the organization within the broad ambit of the government, yeah. this is certainly one organization that stands out for its efficiency, its work, work ethic, its commitment and dedication. And it seems to me a lot of this came from the early years when we set in place what you might call the DNA of the organization. And again, Vikram Sarabhai is doing, he was the founder and the moving force behind the space program. And the early years were very, very exciting. Uh, being young, you're impressionable, that's true. But even then, I think when I look back in retrospect, I think those were the most exciting years. Rapid change, growth, uh, sitting in sort of pressure cooker environments, four or five of us sharing a small little room, very different times where you really interact and do a great deal. You can see what's very happening. Cool. So great fun too. Yeah. So what gave uh, ISRO its fierce independence and you know the incredible ability to succeed as an Indian entity? Couple of things. One is, and this uh, can't be overemphasized. Uh, both uh, the predecessor of Dr. Sarbai, which is Dr. Baba, mm -hmm. and Dr. Sarbai himself had direct and immediate access to the Prime Minister. And the departments in those days it was atomic energy that looked after space too before it was separated, mm -hmm. and uh, they were directly under the Prime Minister. And frankly, I think that is not unimportant. It gave them 
a great deal of not just clout within the bureaucracy, but also they were highly respected. And the Prime Minister, I saw a number of them, uniformly, irrespective of where they were, irrespective of party, somehow had a special regard for scientists and people who had achieved things and done things. And therefore, they were given a degree of freedom that others may not have been. Not in terms of rules or regulations, we by government follow the same rules and regulations. But I think the ability of doing what you wanted to do, of making sure that the administrative services, the so-called IAS, mm -hmm. doesn't become a control function, but is a service function. Mm -hmm. The fact that technocrats call the shots, were, I think important parts of the organization structure and how it worked mm -hmm. out. But these were part of the elements that gave it that sort of independence and focus. Mm -hmm. uh, the other part certainly is the longevity of the chairpersons mm -hmm. who were there, or the chairman who were there, uh, the heads of the organization. Dr. Sarva unfortunately died young, yeah. but he was there a few years. But subsequently, all the chairmen who were there were there for at least five years. In fact, the early years, uh, the person immediately following Dr. Sarva, Professor Satish Dhawan, was there for over a decade. Yeah. Professor Rao was there for a long time, and then Kasturi Raman yeah. for quite some years. So it's been something where the people are from within the organization, been there, understood it, grown there, and been there in the chair for a, quite a while with a very clear focus on the mission. I remember I first met you when I was uh, in aerospace for about eight years at ISRO. And uh, that was the time of Professor Kasturi Rani. And I've, used, I've often wondered, what is it in ISRO that draws the best talent uh, to ISRO? Salary levels are not so high. And yet, some of the finest brains go to ISRO. Why does that happen? You know, it depends on your definition of finest brains, Ashutosh. Because if you look at the kind of recruitment, uh, what would be considered the creme de la creme, which mm -hmm. is you know, IIT types, so to say, mm -hmm. not many of them in Israel. Oh, really? mostly, okay. it is, it's mostly from what you would call as good but second level institutions. Okay. So I think it's not that they're very bright people mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. the difference between getting into an IIT and not getting in and probably three marks in some Correct. exam. Correct. But they're very bright, very intelligent, very sharp people, but not necessarily the IIT persons. Okay. I think what is special is not that. Mm -hmm. Certainly, they're very, very capable people. Yeah. But what is special is the amount of motivation, the attitude to learn, mm -hmm. and the organization culture, mm -hmm. which makes both learning and continuous improvement a part of what you do. Let me take just one example. Uh, there's a system which is there in space. You've been in space, so you know this. The critical thing is you send something up there, you can't go and fix it. Now you can, Correct. but the sense was up there you can't. Correct. So you make sure that there's any fault at all, you do it on the ground, which means very strict peer reviews. Yeah. And when you do peer reviews and do a design review, doesn't matter what level in the hierarchy you are, you might get a very young engineer telling somebody 15 years experience. You know, I think that's wrong. I think there's a little problem that comes mm -hmm. up. And that's critical and you welcome that because you know, once it goes there, you're a disaster. You spent you know, hundreds of crores sometimes. Yeah. And you don't want that to happen. So you're willing to listen. And I think this culture of therefore listening, finding errors, searching for errors, correcting them, is also an important part of what goes into your mental mindset of learning. But I would say that it's motivation, attitude, and not necessarily with, with uh, no reflection on the extremely excellent people that we have had, but not necessarily the brightest, brightest people as defined into academic terms. It's really what you do with what you have. So obviously a very strong nurturing environment. Absolutely, good way of putting it. So I remember, you know, you spoke about not being able to visit. I remember on a lighter note, we were looking for funding for one of the satellite programs I was heading. 
I went to the chairman of a large bank and I said, sir, this is the only asset you will finance where I can't arrange a site visit. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Very good. So, yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, a question you spoke about uh, the ability of uh, ISRO to retain such good talent. What lessons can the corporate world, and you've been a corporate person as well, what lessons can the corporate world draw to retain such talent, their own talent? I think that's an excellent question. And it struck me many times, uh, spent, as you know, some years in the IT industry, yeah, yeah. where there is, especially in the lower and middle levels, almost a revolving door approach. We're there a few years and up and gone. Correct. And whereas in ISRO, people have stayed there for years and yeah. years and years. But you know, I don't think it's, it's something about the corporate world. I know organizations which have retained talent for a long, long time and stayed there. Uh, partly in early years, it was the thought that you joined for a career. So you had good professional people in, in good, nice places and they stayed on. But the other important part is the excitement of what you do. Now, I found this time and again, irrespective of what the compensation package is, yes, there's a certain minimum which each person sure. defines. But given that, it is the interest in the work that you're doing. Are you excited and thrilled about the job that you're doing? And that is the difference, I think. Mm -hmm. And, you know, ISRO is able to create that. It's always had that. The programs are exciting. But each person, see, it's not just a broad program. Each individual must feel that he or she is terribly excited mm -hmm. about what they're doing. And only then will you stay. And then the motivation stays. You want to be there. Let me just give you one example. Yeah. If I can make a minute, uh, sure. take a minute to tangentially talk of something else. You know, a few decades ago, I was taking a team from NASA around one of our workshops in ISRO. And uh, the NASA person asked me, the translator, <coughs> you know, can you ask this shop floor mechanic who was working on a milling machine in those years, which does the metal cutting, what's what's he working on? I just want to understand what is his sense of what is he actually doing? So that's this person. And it's just unbelievable. It seems a made up story, but it's absolutely true. This guy who must be a 10th standard with ITI or something, speaking in Gujarati, in Ahmedabad, said, I'm working on this thing which goes into a little part, which goes into our headache, as it was called then, which is like preamp, which will receive signals from a satellite which will be up in the sky, which will broadcast television programs, which will make the life of people in remote areas different because they will see things which they didn't know and learn things they didn't know. And to me, that is it. If a mechanic on the shop floor <coughs> sees his work as yeah. part of a broader vision, Absolutely. which is doing something to transform the country, you can imagine his motivation levels and his interest in what he do. And that to me is the crux yeah. of what keeps him. In the corporate world, I found the same, that when you're able to create very interesting work for people, mm -hmm. they stay on. Mm -hmm. And the work changes and sustain, it doesn't sustain for long. But you know, as long as you keep them interested in the work, they will stay. That's the minute the work gets dull and boring, or of course, are the big one, the biggest one, as we all know, is people don't leave organizations, they leave bad managers. Correct. Correct. So, you know, that's part of what you might call... Well, that's very, very well said. I mean, it's a very old line that the strength of a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. And what you have said is absolutely correct. The, the strength of an organization is only as strong as its weakest employee. And Absolutely. the fact that you're saying a fitter can make a statement and be... That's very, very good. So, I'm going to spend a little more, you know, two or three more questions on space because... Uh, all our viewers love to know what's going on and Chandrayaan has done wonders. Yes. And of course, ISRO has done wonders. 
So tell me, Kiran, uh, I'll come to a specific question on Chandrayaan, but how, why is space so important in a national uh, program? Uh, Trump has recently announced a space force. Uh, Prime yeah. Minister Modi uh, is giving so much flexibility and freedom to uh, ISRO. What is the relevance of space in the common person's mind, uh, life? You know, there the are two different aspects to it, Ashutosh, two completely different aspects. One is uh, space technology in general. And I think as we have seen, and you mentioned uh, President Trump's space force, many countries are beginning to do that because space has become increasingly important strategically as a means for either amplifying your military capabilities or, or sometimes, though there are some laws, international laws, UN laws against that, mm. of using it as uh, destructive means from space. That's one aspect of it. And uh, the Indian space program through ISRO doesn't deal with that, defense people do. Mm. But space technology per se, therefore, is of great importance from a strategic, military, okay. geopolitical point of view. And just to keep up with that for a large country like India, not only with its ambition, but its sheer size and is very, very high. So we must be upfront there in space technology as we have been in nuclear technology. The second part of it is its use. And I am very proud, you know, more than two and a half decades after leaving this rotate to be linked to that. And you ask so many questions, yeah. so I'm very happy. Yeah. I feel proud to have been Absolutely. once for over two decades part of ISRO. But uh, I think the important part really is our uniqueness of our program is from the beginning has been focused on what can we do for development of the country and for the common person. So you know, a lot of work we did, for example, in remote sensing, where most countries started from surveillance and so-called spying, you know, out in space, better than using an aircraft flying around, was to use remote sensing for things like, you know, assessment of crops. How much are you going to have this year? Is they, are they in good health? Trying to find groundwater, you know, things that help the person in that remote area or in a rural area actually do something which space contributes in being useful. Mm. Or, favorite example, because I was part of it in yeah. the early years, yeah. was broadcasting. Correct. I mean, now it's changed, I and mean, broadcasting world has radically changed over 20, 30 years. Mm. But imagine in 1975 when we did this experiment. Yeah when the only TV station in India was in Delhi City with a 20 kilometer or 30 kilometer coverage, nothing else. We were able to take TV out to remote parts of Odisha, which didn't even have electricity. TV sets run off batteries or in North Bihar, which was cut off every year after the rivers flooded. Carry agricultural programs with latest agricultural practices, health programs, information of all kinds, development, uh, program, educational programs for school children with the best possible teachers done there. I mean, the transformation in the lives of those individuals. Correct. That is, to me, what space is all about. And that's been what it's focused on. Yes, there's a lot of technology development required, and therefore a lot of it goes into technology per se. Mm -hmm. Some of it is space exploration and science, space science, using space to do scientific work. Mm -hmm. But a substantial part, and I yet hope the overwhelming majority, mm -hmm. is related to this thing about how to use it for people's benefit. True. So, you know, uh, one last question, because you have such an amazing journey, so I want to move on also. But one more question on space, and that is on costs. I mean, I remember when we used to work with Lockheed and Hughes on launch of those geostationary satellites. The launch vehicle itself used to be a quarter billion dollars. The insurance on the launch vehicle plus the satellite used to be a quarter billion dollars. 
And here, ISRO seems to do everything in less than $100 million and reach the moon. What is it that uh, ISRO does so well that its costs are so low? A few things really, Ashutosh, on that. One is certainly clever engineering and, uh, you know, clever thinking. One of the things, for example, is you can use a huge thing like the US did a Saturn V rocket, massive one that takes you from Earth straight to Moon. Just see where the Moon yeah. will be and take a straight line. Other way, which is ISRO's choice, is it? We don't want to use that kind of vehicle. We don't have one. So we'll use the gravity of Correct. the Earth itself Correct. to spin the, sat the uh, satellite around the Earth. And as it gains velocity, we'll, so you kick it off a little more, so it escapes Earth velocity. Yeah. Slower, longer process, far, 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 far cheaper Correct. and less risky. Mm. I mean, there are lots mm. of elements that have to work. Yeah. But then one big rocket, which something goes wrong, you're finished. Yeah. So I think that's one part. Mm. The second part is tremendous cost consciousness. And I yet remember, and this is down the organization, the ethos. But my first jobs when I joined was, you know what, doing costing for a small little sounding rocket we were doing. Wow. Why costing of that? Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, as the government looks at it, there are, as they call it, expenditure departments. Mm -hmm. You're given a budget and say, hey, spend the money. Mm -hmm. And you judge on have you spent money at the end of the year. On March 31st, mm -hmm. did you spend the budget? Yeah. And there's some earning revenue departments which gets revenue. And places like space were looked as expenditure department. You give a budget to space and say, have you spent it? Mm -hmm. And here, was an organization that was beginning to cost something and go through it with the intention of saying, where can we save money? Are we doing it more efficiently than the guys from abroad where we had got some of the stuff from? Where else can we save money and how do we do this? Yes. And I think that sort of, from early days, the ethos of being conscious about cost in time, about budgeting, about where can we save money, and importantly, clever thinking in terms of how you optimize innovative things that will make it the cost lower. I've been a critical part of the program, yes. which is the biggest contribution. Lots of people say, oh, India is not compatible to the US in terms of cost. Very true. But for many things, it is. Here, you use a lot of material. Yes, people may be a little cheaper, but not the material you use. And even then, we are cheaper because of these factors. So, Kiran, now moving to the next part of your journey, which is television. I mean, you know, you were in space when it was right in the beginning, early days. You went to television in, in, in the days and you were with Discovery and Animal Planet, which today are such big media stations. Um, what is happening to um, the media industry now with all the handheld devices coming in? A complete transformation, complete transformation. And uh, we all see it, we experience it. You know, I saw one transition, which at that time seemed similar, mm -hmm. going from the standard broadcast TV with the so-called Yagi antenna, how is it just to cable and then to satellite. And it seemed a huge transformation. And suddenly you had multiple channels and you could receive everything. You had a choice of actually, particularly in India, you saw one Doordarshan channel where your choice was on, off. You had a choice of different channels. It seemed revolutionary. Today, I think the kind of revolution on handheld and the services, streaming service that you get, is just fantastic. It's changed things completely. And to me, it seems that this is a completely new invention of media. Mm -hmm. uh, people are yet beginning to grow, grapple and understand it because lots of people, in fact, probably in a large majority, watch video only on a handheld small device. And therefore, your format has to change. I mean, what kind of long shots you use, what mise-en-scene you use as a filmmaker would say, mm -hmm. and how much goes up, and what duration. Because even attention spans have changed. You're yeah. watching something on the fly two minutes and no wonder a thing like TikTok with 15 seconds yeah. video is so hugely popular. I think it had to do 
it started the duration mm-hmm. and everything else, or to go to a non-video format, uh, Twitter. I mean, you know, when I first heard of Twitter, I said, crazy, yeah? 140 characters, what can you say in that? I mean, who's going to want to send these crazy telegraphic messages which really can't convey anything, except saying arriving tomorrow kind of thing, where you send a telegram and the whole day is But it's late. And I think that transformation is as much in people's heads about attention spans, what you're looking for, how quickly you want information, just the gist of it is there. Good or bad, I won't say it's a value judgment. But I think that's changed media altogether. And uh, broadcast television, as, as we knew it, is probably, I wouldn't say deathbed because old media tend to continue. We always have a small list. So radio continues strongly, print continues. We'll have one more medium. But this is a new medium. And I think recognition of the fact this is a new medium. Just as radio and television are different, broadcast television and what you get on a streaming service or a short service or what you typically consume on your mm. cell phone or handheld device. It's a different medium, correct? And that's the way to look at it. Correct. And what is your view on uh, all these new OTTs, you know, with Netflix, Amazon Prime, and so many? How are they evolving? Well, I, I think uh, they, they have changed things radically. But they've changed things radically uh, primarily because they have huge financial muscle power. Okay. I think that's not unimportant. Mm-hmm. It builds on itself, of course, that they started off, they were successful, and they went there. But the fact that their content is there, mm-hmm. first thing. Second thing is the convenience that people want today. Yeah. Anytime, anywhere. You know, I want to see something. I want it at my choice, my time. Mm-hmm. I don't want to broadcast thing. I have to schedule my viewing for this time because I want to watch the program. Mm-hmm. So you can now watch anything, anytime. anytime. You can stop where you want, Correct. start where you left off. Correct. This kind of conveniences is something that these new services have made possible. And that's a huge winner. Mm-hmm. So let's move to the third segment, which is NASCOM again. You were with NASCOM from 2001 to 2008. And um, it has always often been said that IT is so big today because the government didn't interfere. You led it at a very, very fascinating time immediately after the famous Y2K. What were some of your challenges as you built NASCOM into such a major powerhouse? You know, first, I, I should say one thing, Ashutosh, because I know that most people, including Many, probably majority of my industry colleagues make this part in just past genuinely that, uh, as you said, that IT grew because the government neglected it, the government ignored it, or as some of the Gucharandas said famously that uh, the country grew when the government said IT was growing and yeah, yeah. the government wasn't watching. But not true. I think there were conscious policies, including a policy of not doing anything, okay. which sustained the yeah, that's industry. Well, yeah. But, you know, I should say to your question about uh, growth and where we were, Tremendous people in the industry. Yeah. Such fantastic people who really driven, made the adaptation and changes, very agile. You know, Y2K was over and most people felt as the end of the Indian IT industry because it survived on Y2K. And what did they do now? And here was the industry that needed to go after them. And then continued doing services, uh, captured the BPO movement at the right time and capitalized on it hugely. Got out of the simpler parts of that, like call centers, in good time before they become fully automated and moved on to more sophisticated data analysis and all kinds of analytics. And now is poised for the next thing. I remember two years back, a lot of discussion and concern, three, four years back, saying with AI and data analytics and what's happening in terms of automation, centers will move back and people wouldn't want to work in India. Why should they come here? Rather do it in their own place because you don't need as many people now, which is the big thing. Yeah. But I think not, not true. And you know, I think if you ask me to summarize 
or success in IT always use the fact that we had the famous triple mantra, which worked very well, a combination of three, quicker, cheaper, and faster. Okay. We did because things quicker, we were, you know, uh, better, because we worked on quality very, very hard and made sure we reached the highest global standards of quality and uh, faster, because uh, as I tell people half in jest, but I think it's true, if you want something done in the US in December, mm -hmm. and they'll tell you, hey, it's Christmas, which means those three days are not if you go to Europe, and uh, with the apologies to my European friends, if you go to France and say, I want this done, they say, but it's August. Mm -hmm. And all of August is vacation. Yeah, so you come to India and I say, I want this done in the middle of Diwali, and somebody will say, yeah, I get it done. Yeah. The peak festival, people very work true. so faster. Very true. Very true. Now, just to close that part, mm -hmm. we're now moving not just quicker, better, faster, but to different, which is all about innovation. Mm -hmm. The future is that, mm -hmm. apart from all the technological changes, not only need to be more nimble, quicker, faster, cheaper, but also different. But something else. So, you know, as a follow-up question to that, are we seeing more research now coming up in India? Yes, very much more, and I think that's a very positive sign. But no, for somebody like me who's impatient and given my background, who mm -hmm. want to see much more research, not enough. I think the industry needs to put a lot more focus, a lot more money mm -hmm. behind the kind of research that's required. Interesting. So, um, I'm going to ask you one question on uh, the role that you played as chairman of Satyam. Uh, you know, it went through a lot of turmoil, uh, the new step 10. What were some of the positive steps you took to be able to bring Satyam back from the brink of disaster that it had reached to a thriving organization today? You know, I don't generally like to talk about Satyam, but this one I can, I can tell you. I think what was critical is the very obvious things, but I think they were critical that we did them. We were able, maybe with a combination of effort and luck, to do them well. You know, in such a situation, you have two, two things which can happen in parallel, and if they reinforce each other, you're sunk. One is customers start leaving you, and then you're finished, because customers start leaving, your people start leaving, which you mentioned assets earlier, which can't be visited in space. These are assets, whereas a bank manager told me, your assets walk in at nine and walk out at five, where's my asset? So, your assets are your people, right? So, if customers leave, your team leaves. On the other hand, if your team gets worried, saying, hey, this company's in deep trouble, they'll get paid next month, I don't know, I'm quitting. And they go, then your customers go, correct? So, the first step was to work on these two parallels, say, reassure customers, get them comfort, give them something to make sure stay, and reassure people, your employees, your staff. And we did this very simply in, in two ways, and I can go on and on with it. Uh, I spoke to many of the customers who I knew, and I told them that my only request to you is stay on with us, give us three or four weeks. If you think you're not doing well, we will ensure a very smooth transition to any other vendor who you want. And then we worked with the employees and staff and told them, look, this is a misnomer. This is not a Satyam scam. It's a nice alliteration. It's not. If it's a scam at all, it has to do with the promoter. So blame him. You guys are Satyam. You've got a brand. You've done great work, which is why you're respected. We got to stay, we got to fight the battle. And I think when people have their backs to the wall, they cannot fight back better. Absolutely. And I think that worked. And then there were lots of other small things. I'm, I'm sure. So, so a related question, nothing to do with Satyam. But you know, you've been in the tech space with NASCOM. You know, you saw what was happening in some companies. And I've often discussed with a lot of people that as Indians, we have always been taught how important it is to win to come first. 
and that manifests itself in our behavior on the road, you know, at the queues and whatever else. And yet none of us uh, talks about the importance of failure and how much learning there can be. So we've had so many cases, including one instance where the promoter took the extreme step very recently. What are your views on uh, failure? And uh, you know, the Bay uh, talks about failure and rewards it. Here we don't. So very true, Ashwish. I love your example because I see this all the time and it's me all, you know, worked up yeah. of cues and cars to be correct. You've got to be the winner, you've got to be first. Yeah. Doesn't matter about others. No, I think you've touched on a deeply important cultural aspect, recognizing failure and overcoming it. And that's something in our culture which I think is a problem. Because failure is seen not as issue or problem related, but as person related. So, you know, if, if you're doing something and it hasn't worked out, it's not that that didn't work out, it's just that Ashutosh failed. Mm. And I think that somehow has built up. Okay. And that does two things. One is in the corporate world, it makes people very wary of failure and failures get marked out and therefore people tend to be cautious and it creates its own set of problems and issues. The second one is innovation. You know, you can't innovate unless you fail a few times and which inventor has not had so many failures before succeeding? And if you don't recognize that and look at failures as something bad, it's terrible. Mm -hmm. And I always tell this anecdotally, I say you go to a good VC, good, typically in the US or Israel, but anywhere else, a good VC, maybe even in India, mm -hmm. and you say, it's okay, this idea looks good, tell me what's your background. Mm -hmm. And you say, I did this and it didn't work, and I did that and it didn't work, then I did something else and it didn't work. The typical Indian ethos will say, hey, this guy's a failure, he's yeah. tried three things and didn't yeah. work. Yeah. The smart VC will say, this guy's done three things, and yet continued, shows number one is passion, number two, he's learned from his failures, number three, the guy has not come with a good idea, so maybe I'll back him. I think that difference between success Very and failure is important. So even when you're looking at innovations, lots of companies, corporates give rewards for the best innovation. I know the better ones and now more and more of doing that, also give for the most grand failure. Which means the idea was great, everything was, but it didn't work, doesn't matter. We recognize and reward that too. Very interesting. So just a couple of more questions. Uh, what is uh, your biggest learning from your biggest failure? And the reason I ask you this is because a lot of young people who watch our show just assume successful people haven't failed. So what are your thoughts? My God, I've got so many failures Ashutosh, that I, I have to make a huge list and think <laughs> which one. No, more seriously, let me tell you one that may be of some relevance in terms of yeah. even the corporate. It's not to do with the corporate world at all. But it tells you what sometimes happens. You know, uh, uh, you, you mentioned my many years in Israel and then Discovery. In between, there was an interim of a few years where I did something very interesting I enjoyed tremendously, which is something called the Countrywide Classroom. Okay. It did programs for university-level students with this great idea which we wrote down and I put a sort of tagline behind it saying, beyond the textbook and outside the classroom, which means it's not about textbook yeah. learning. It's something which you can't see in your classroom. So taking them out really. And we thought it's great and we worked on it hard and so on. And some of the viewership was never great. We had a lot of people, including, used to come at odd times of the day, middle of the day, when okay. it was a lot of Auzifs and others watching it, there were too few students. And I was deeply disappointed because to me, this was a great thing to do. Say, hey, learning is beyond this. If, you, if you're learning physics, you must understand why this Nobel Prize in literature went to so and so by understanding what the person is about, what did he write, what did she do, whatever. And it didn't work. Really. And I quickly realized that what you 
put in corporate terms as being close to customer, understand the customer. I think that's a great idea, by the way, going outside textbook and Absolutely. beyond textbook classroom. Yeah. But I think the learning to me, which I might take away from that, was hey, you've got to understand your customer, empathize with them more. This poor student in the college, he may love to understand why when he's studying, you know, literature, why he should understand what the chemistry price is about in Bubble this year. But look at it from his or her point of view. They have to do well in that exam to get somewhere in life. And therefore, their focus is very clear. And if you don't empathize with that understanding of what they want, you'll be serving them the wrong stuff mm-hmm. and for them. And I think that carries you through a lot of stuff. That understanding whom you're dealing with, call it customer, call it colleague, call it your you know, client, but understanding and empathizing with them to see what is it that they might want. In some sense, put yourself in their shoes and then see what it is. I think to me, that's an important part of learning. Many, many, many fears are shows, but I think the overall broad thing to your question is all of us fail in many things, small or big. Hopefully only small, but sometimes big. The important thing is not to, you know, get glum over it or something, but what do you learn from it? And I think that's critical. One last comment on that. I mean, look at the way, and I want to sort of round off where we started on that space. Look at what ISRO does and our space organizers do. The minute you have a failure, the first thing you do is set up a failure analysis committee that digs into that failure to weigh them that what was the root cause of the failure. No point saying I fixed it now and it's fine. What caused it to fail? You don't want it to happen again. And that to me is the way to go about it. Which is learning from failure. Absolutely. And more learnings come from that than your successes. I agree. Kiran, thank you so much. I mean, you know, we've had the honor of having you on the show. What an iconic journey from space to television, to technology, and of course, to education. Thank you very much again. Thank you, Ashwat. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Brand Called You podcast. Be sure to visit tbcy.in to join the conversation, access show notes, and discover fantastic bonus content. You can follow us on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Simply search for The Brand Called You. Thank you and see you next week.